Get $10 off your next $50 or more purchase when you sign up for text alerts from Academy Sports and Outdoors. Text the word FISHING to 22369. Once again, that's FISHING to 22369. Offer expires 731 of 2022, and message and data rates may apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Fisherman's Post Saltwater Podcast Series. This episode is titled Light Tackle Jigging on Nearshore Structure. I'm talking with friend Captain Mike Opegard of Native Sun Guide Service out of the Topsail area. We're going to be covering such areas as structure, tackle, target species, and techniques. My name is Gary Hurley of Fisherman's Post. Fisherman's Post has been serving the saltwater fishing community of North Carolina since 2003. We've been bringing you fishing reports, fishing information, fishing tournaments, fishing schools, and here in our latest and greatest effort, the Saltwater Podcast series where we reach out to our captain and guide friends from up and down the North Carolina coast and ask them to share with us their insights, their knowledge on how to catch more fish more often. In this project, I'm joined every week with my partner, Billy Thorpe of Thorpe Creative. Here we are, Billy, back at it, another podcast to be put together. Oh, right there. I thought, my, I thought I changed there for a second. Man, I, I'm excited. I'm excited to have a friend Mike. A friend, I like how you introduced him, friend Mike Opegard, Captain Mike Opegard. Uh, he's part of our weekly fishing report, so get to spend quite a bit of time with him. And uh, all, a great guy, so I'm excited for you guys' conversation. And hopefully you don't give each other too much of our time as you have pre-show and every other <laughs> week that we, we talk to him. So I'm pretty excited about it, man. Um, excited about this episode as well and want to shout out. We'll just get right into it, Gary. I'll just shout out our sponsor of the episode. Uh, we have, well, two sponsors. We got Academy Sports. As you guys saw, you can text that to get your coupon. And then Marine Warehouse Center, which has been with us since episode number five, which is amazing. So here's a amazing. quick quick word from those guys and we'll be right back at marine warehouse we have everything for trailer trailer parts engines engine parts new boats boat parts a full store we have a service department we are your one-stop shop for marine equipment and hardware we offer a wide variety of parts and accessories for all your marine needs the best part about working at marine warehouse center is to help customers really get the most out of their coastal lifestyle and share our love for the water at marine warehouse we're here to get you out on the water because of our love for the water we like being out there and we want you out there with us Boom. I heard that invite from, from Emmett that they want they want me out there with them. So They do. Just, give me, just call me, Emmett. I'm out there with you. Tell them I don't want to buy a boat. I just want to go on the boat with you guys. Yeah, like I need friends who buy boats. I don't want to buy a boat. Right. I just need yeah. all of you listeners to buy a boat and invite me on it. And if you are in the fishing boating community, though, man, you want to be, you want a relationship with Marine Warehouse Center, sales, service, and parts. I mean, and here we are sort of in the late part of the summer. You know, go ahead and get that laundry list together of things you want addressed on your boat as we go into the fall season. Not the early fall season. I still want you on your boat. But maybe later in the season, start putting together that laundry list now so you don't forget anything. Take that laundry list in your boat to Marine Warehouse Center, and they'll take care of you. Yeah, yeah, good, good crew over there. Really enjoy those guys. And, man, they are, dude. They are hard workers. Emmett, I know I give them a hard time at times because uh, he's been spending a little more time on the road and traveling. But this week, man, he was he's caught out in the wild, like, doing business stuff. And, like, he shows up professional, and, uh, man, he is a hustler. He's out there working. So 
we're going to play a little game, Gary, called Where in the World is Emmett? And I have a picture of where he is, but I'm going to give you a couple hints and see if you can guess. Where in the world is Emmett? I'm ready. All right. So <laughs> I don't even know how to set this up, but he's do- he is uh, in the midst of he- – he's being um, – with the gas prices rising, he's very mindful of that. And so, and he's also doing some business meetings in a bigger city. So what is he doing in that bigger city? He is riding a courier bike. Something, something of that sort. So here is Emmett um, dressed right. up in his business attire and he is, uh, he's going to business meetings. He's trying to get better deals on bigger boats. <laughs> and saving gas money while he's doing it. And saving gas money. Look at him. He is dapper. Emmett is dapper. Dapper Emmett. Yeah, so for people listening, it's uh, I basically just Photoshop Emmett's face on some dude riding a bike wearing a suit holding, um, I don't know, like a really expensive leather <laughs> note holder or something, some kind of note bag. I don't know. He's on his way to Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, he definitely is. Definitely is. Uh, he needs a little bell on the bike. I'll remember that next time, Emmett. Right. Get a little bell on the bike. But Anyway. Enough of our shenanigans. I don't know how they sponsor our show. All we do is make fun of them all the time, Gary. <laughs> Maybe if we made more fun of them, they would be a bigger sponsor. <laughs> well, you mean crack like five jokes about you, Emmett, every show? You make add one more zero? How many jokes for one more zero? <laughs> Man, one more zero. Let me put my brainstorming cap on for one more zero. I'm in on that challenge. <laughs> oh, man, too much fun. Oh, well, Gary, I'll show you a fish picture so we can move on and get to the good part of this podcast, which is going to be some fish and stuff. But here, here's a nice fish picture from Art Blakesley. Caught this amberjack using mullet while fishing out of Riceville Beach. Uh, and, man, that is a good-looking amberjack right there, so... I don't know about good eating, but man, I, I I'm like desperate to go to Mike. I'm desperate to get him on the screen. Uh, but yeah, good looking fish there. Appreciate you guys sending that in. Yep, nearshore jigging. We're going to talk with Mike, and nearshore nearshore fishing is within the parameter. And what I'm getting ready to talk about is Fisherman's Post's new project. It's weekly inshore fishing reports. It's really inshore nearshore though, and it is weekly delivered behind a subscription paywall. Audio and video delivery. If you haven't checked it out, you want to go to fishermanspost.com and then member content. There's information there. You can sign up there and you can access there. A project we're very excited about. As Billy said in the beginning, Mike Opegard, who I'm talking with tonight, is one of 11 captains I talk with every week from up and down the entire North Carolina coast and get insight on inshore, nearshore bait, you know, changing conditions, how to address the changing conditions. Thoroughly enjoying the project. Yeah, man, it's a lot of fun, dude, and it's a lot of fun to get these guys on um, every week and, and listen to what's going on on the water, and it's it's live action. It's, it's like a replay of Sports Week every every week, so right. it's pretty cool. And this is your friend Mike as well, so I'm expecting you to pay attention to Mike for Billy's Best Takeaway. That's Billy's Best Takeaway. Mike and I are so tight, he already sent me a takeaway before the show. Said, oh, he sent you a cheat sheet. He said, Billy, I want you to just relax, enjoy yourself. I know Gary's working you over there too hard, so. Have, have <laughs> him send you some questions, and I'll just dip out for this 30 minutes, and you guys can talk. Dude, we would definitely talk. I don't know if we talk about fishing, but we talk about something. So. Well, let's, let's bring them on. Captain Mike Opegard, Native Sun Guide Service out of the Topsail area, talking about light tackle jigging on nearshore structure. Welcome to the show, Mike. Always look forward to talking to you. 
Thank you, Gary. If they only knew what happened before the cameras came on, right? <laughs> right. That's a that's a different tier membership. You got to pay pretty hefty for that behind the scene uh, insight. But man, uh, <clears throat> you've done this show. You've done the show a couple of times. You know the gig. Before we can talk about light tackle jigging on nearshore structure, you got two questions. You're ready. I start. Go. Question number one: Why should we listen to anything you have to say about light tackle? or jigging, or nearshore fishing, any of it? Well, you know, it's one of the things I've done. You know, there's we've got so many guides in the water now. I've always kind of done something a little different, and this kind of nearshore jigging is one of the things I've always done. It goes back to when we were kids, great trout fishing, you know, back in the 80s. And it's a, it's a great way to catch fish. And, you know, sometimes the beach can kind of get crowded, and you got all those people in their boats wanting to tow inner tubes and stuff, and – Everybody's in the marsh. It's a great way to get away from everybody and kind of, you know, have some time to yourself. Man, fantastic answer. Easily, we're moving on to question number two. And as you know, question number two is a non-fishing-related question. Here we go. As you know, I am a big fan of how you spell your last name. I mean, a huge fan. And so (laughs) what I'm asking you to do, are you able to give me any other word with two A's in a row? Mike Oppegard oh, has G A A R D. Any other word with two A's in a row? I don't think so. I, I'm trying real hard. Uh, you know, I can't think of one with two A's in a row without you know picking up my phone and going to the computer. Ardvar. Uh, Ardvar. Okay. What else? Bazaar. Yeah. Not bizarre, but a bazaar. Oh. The place. So, 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 what are you trying to say there about me, Gary? That not Odd too many people think it's a good idea to put two A's in a row. Well, I, I agree with you, but you know the Norwegian <laughs> spelling is kind of a little hard in English, so that's what I'm stuck with. Well, let's talk fishing. Enough of enough of double A's. Let's talk double fishing. A's and double A's. Yeah, uh, all those damn vowels and consonants. Good God. Um, I like the way you set it up. I mean, you know, if we're going to talk about nearshore structure, let's get a great understanding of structure. Um, you know, you're talking to us about the top area, but certainly this will be applicable up and down the North Carolina coast. So give us a primer on structure as Mike Opegard knows it. All right. When I'm going to find structure, there's a couple of different types. There's there's obvious what we call live rock, live bottom. You know, here in North Carolina, we've got places, the seabed that was exposed. Um it exposed to the bedrock, that limestone substrate, you get stuff growing on it, you know, all the kelps and seagrasses and stuff, that attracts the bait fish, the bait fish attract the bigger fish. Then the other side of that is maybe some of the kelp beds. Um, there are some places where we've got like a hard shell bottom with kelp on it. Um, that'll hold fish certain times of the year. That's another kind of structure. You know, the easiest way to really think about it is, is it's our inlets coming out the inlet going down the beach as you work your way out a lot of it is hard sand just plain hard sand and these are places where it's not there's actually something there on the bottom whether it be like we call that live rock or kelp or something like that something that's going to hold bait there and that's really what we're looking for we think structure it's not so much you know hey this is a six you know six foot ledge or whatever it's it that is true but it it holds bait and that's the reason why we're there more than anything is it gives the bait somewhere to hide. Therefore the bait congregates there. Therefore the predators come and look for the bait there. Um, 
I was going to ask on on like the kelp beds or on the hard sand bottom. So how how does that show up differently on my bottom reader on my screen? You know, I, you know, if I'm over top of a sunken ship, easy to easy to pinpoint. All right, I'm That's here. That's obvious. But what well, about you know, what about this live bottom? You know, modern electronics really have kind of come into play. Um, it's not the old graph machine or the old paper machine that we remember as kids. Right now, basically, a lot of what I've got is you know, your side scan sonars, your whatever Garmin's version is, but the Simrad version, you know, the side scan sonar, you can actually distinguish the rock and the ledge and the faces of the rock. So it's pretty easy to see. You know, the best thing to do is to go get, you know, I know Maps Unique has a chart and I think Fish Anywhere or Fish Here or something like that's got a chart. Go get the charts, go find the obvious public bottom, whether it be, you know, the Liberty Ship or Dallas Rock or or Surf City Rocks, or, you know, just the obvious public bottom that everybody has. Turn on your electronics and learn how to look at the bottom. Um, years ago, I did a little bit of self-experimentation and uh, actually dropped a GoPro over and was filming the bottom as I was taking it on the sonar. And that really helped a lot as far as your interpretation of what the sonar is telling you. And it's kind of neat to see some of the stuff down there, you know. I do that stuff kind of in January when we're slow. So I, I really don't want to put on a suit and go overboard to see it, but you can, you can go down there with a GoPro and, and film it. Or, you know, like I said, if you go to a known structure, you can sit there and look at the structure and then use that to extrapolate what it looks like in other places. Um, that's the best way to find it. That, you know, there is no shortcut to that stuff. You really kind of have to go first, find the public bottom, understand what you're looking at. And then, you know, start to make a circular pattern around it. There's always, you know, the neat thing about all the artificial reefs in North Carolina is they didn't just put them out in a desert. Uh, a lot of those places where they planted the artificial reef, take for instance, what we call the tire reef here off Dolly Roger Pier. I don't know which number it is. I'm not very good with those, but we called it the tire reef. It's off the Jolly Roger Pier. You know, originally it was tires and then they started dumping some uh, concrete culverts and now they're dumping reef balls. And it all shows up different on your machine. It's a great place to go look and start and say, hey, this is what it looks like. And also, you know, it's there for a reason because outside of the litter zone or the debris field or whatever you want to call it, there's other pieces of natural bottom. And that's the reason why they put it there to begin with. So it gives you a good snapshot of what to look for and how to look for it. And that's the best, easiest way you can really kind of learn. And once you learn, then, you know, slow trolling for king mackerel even up to six knots, seven knots. If you're trolling for Spanish, go pick you a depth and, and go look. And you'd be surprised what you can find. We've got a plethora of it. A lot of it's not necessarily on somebody else's chart, but there is a ton of it out there. You can find it. Um, man, I follow everything you said. So here's my other follow. I mean, that's insightful. And here's my other question. So when you're talking structure in general or when you're talking structure for the purpose of this podcast, you're not talking about where like a six foot drop or a four foot drop. Yeah, obviously that, I mean, but those are so obvious. I mean, the, the problem with some of those really big ledges, everybody knows they're there. Um, so if you think about it over a week, at least six or seven boats are hitting that same piece of structure. And if that's all you have, then by all means, go learn, do that because you can still catch fish there. I'm not saying you can't catch fish there. I'm just saying that, as you get better at finding that six-foot ledge, realize that there's other pieces of structure out there that only may be a foot and a half, two foot, 
or it may not be a piece of structure. It may be a grass bed and all that stuff shows up on your machine differently and actually shows you what that structure looks like. And you can get really good at discerning whether or not you need to be in this area or go somewhere else. And really, like I said, modern electronics and modern mapping has really taken a lot of guesswork out of it. You know, it's not the old days. I remember grandpa would come out the inlet, run down the beach and line a tree up with a house and run a compass course at XRPMs for so many minutes. And we'd stop and fish. And by God, there were always fish there. But, you know, now we've got the beauty of GPS and all that other stuff. It's, it's a great tool. You just have to learn to use it. And it's going to take some time to learn how to use it. Okay. And then on to, con, you know, continue this structure conversation just a little bit more. For the purposes of light tackle jigging, are you a fan? Are you a bigger fan of like hard bottom with kelp and natural growth over something like tires and concrete abutment? I don't think it matters. I've had some really good divers tell me that the flounder will actually lay on top of those reef balls. That they'll, you know, back when the flounder season was open a little bit more, those guys told me that they would actually go down and spear flounder off the top of the reef ball. I don't think it matters. I think it's just a fact of something there to attract the bait. Yeah, obviously I tend to like the natural stuff a little bit more because that's not on everybody's GPS. I don't necessarily think it's any better. I just think it's not, it's off the beaten path if that makes any sense. And you know, the one tip I would have give you is, is that, you know, once you find that piece of structure and go, okay, hey, there's a ledge here. Obviously, as you ride around and look around that ledge, you'll see other little teeny pieces of structure that somebody else may not have seen. And then that is where you can typically do a little bit better because, you know, there haven't been 10 boats there this week at Dallas Rock dropping a jig to catch black bass or a grunt or whatever. Right on. And then my, I think this is my final question in this area would be your definition of nearshore. You know, I, you know, how far are we talking specifically out of your topsail inlets? Yeah, I thought real hard about that. To me, to me, I think that nearshore stuff, I've got some stuff in 25, 30 feet. And then for me, typically in the bay boat, I'll run out 70 feet or so. Um, if I'm running 70 in the bay boat, chances are there's no wind. It's a gorgeous day. Um, I spend a lot of time in 35 feet to 60 feet. And I know that's a wide swath because you're talking probably anywhere from what, eight, nine miles off the beach, right? So, but that to me, the near shore to me, that's kind of what I'm thinking is, can I reach it in the bay boat? You know, I'm not the big 27 center console. I'm not going 20, 30 miles off the beach. I'm, I'm in that near stuff. And that's kind of where that whole near shore jigging came from. Right on. Hey, uh, what about tackle? This might be a good time to talk tackle. Because I, I think I think you've hit a home run on structure. Well, to me, and this is this is again, we're not offshore, right? So I'm not throwing a eight ounce knife jig for amberjack, and we do catch some amberjacks. We do catch a bunch of cobia doing this, but it's a thing where I'm thinking more light, light tackle. I want my clients to have fun. Um, you know, I don't want. Uh, this is bad. I don't necessarily want them to take a four alt cylinder, drop it to the bottom and just crank. I won't, you know, this is supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be, uh, you're meat fishing, but you're not meat fishing, if that makes any sense. So I typically stay away from chicken rigs. A lot of what I use is this right here. Let's see, go that way. There we go. A um, two ounce jig, a two ounce. This is just a two ounce jig, simple, plain. I think that's a one alt hook. 
I'll do anything with it. I'll pair it with um, a, a, like diesel minnows from Z-Man. Let me see if I can get that in the screen. It's backwards. There we go. Diesel minnows from Z-Man. I'll pair it with the uh, paddle Z's from Z-Man. Stuff like that. Uh, I find that works great. Um, the disadvantage of not using squid is that I catch less grunts. And we all know grunts this time of year is a great food fish. So I tend to throw a little bit more squid in the heat of the summer because I don't catch as many grunts on soft plastic. You can catch a lot of black bass on soft plastics. You can catch a lot of grouper on soft plastics. But I have a hard time catching the grunts on soft plastic. So I tend to throw a lot of squid say July and August, and then I'll transition into more soft plastic as we get into the winter and the fall. Um, those are the things I do the most of. Um, obviously, go ahead and pair it with uh, some good old-fashioned Procure. Um, we can get into the debate about Gulp versus Z-Man. I tend to like Z-Man a lot better because I feel like I can catch a lot more fish without having to constantly put new bait on. That's me. I, I understand the guys from the Gulp standpoint, and it works. I'm not going to say that it doesn't. I tend to go with the Z-Man and the Procure. But, you know, a, a jig head like this, uh, two-ounce bucktail, everybody who's ever floundered fish before has used a Spro two-ounce bucktail. It works. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, some other stuff. I know Blue, Air, Blue Water Candy makes one, the Cobia jig. I think its hook is just a touch big, but it certainly works a lot very well. Um, you know, the good old blade jigs like this, just the good old blade jigs work as well, too. That and, you know, for years as kids, we always used to use the good old diamond jigs, you know, the cheap diamond jigs. Every tackle store's got them, you know, for gray trout and stuff. And then, you know, as the gray trout kind of eased away, a lot of us started trying to catch other things with them. Um, I like soft plastic. I think it does well. Um, obviously, part of the conversation we're having right now is we're going to talk about flounder and how I think, you know, it works for flounder. I personally prefer soft plastic with Procure for flounder. To me, I think it's the the go-to bait for me, at least. Um, I know live bait works as well. I also feel that sometimes with live bait, I'm catching so much trash that it makes it more difficult to keep a jig in the water on the bottom. Um, when a flounder hits a soft plastic, you know you've got a fish. How about if that makes any sense to anybody? Sure, man. I'm following that. So I, you've given, you've unpacked a lot, and I've got a few circle rounds. I'm actually going to back it up before I even start circling around. So on your boat for the light tackle, and I certainly understand your philosophy about not wanting a four-out senator. So are you are preferable to 3,000, 4,000, 2,500? Yeah, actually, what's I got your, one right here, Gary. I'm what's up. your rod choice? So there's, uh, that's a quantum. I throw all quantum reels, and I think that's a 3,000. I tend to use a little bit more towards a 4,000. But I think this can get done with the 3,000. Obviously, I'm throwing up. I'm the an ambassador for TFO. I'm a brand ambassador. So, obviously, everything I'm throwing is TFO. Um, they make an extra heavy. This is a two-ounce uh, blank that's really good. They also make a heavy, which is an ounce and a half that I'll cheat up to a two-ounce with. I, I, I really think that light spinning rod is great because if you are going to be jigging all day, there's nothing worse than, you know, after that first hour or so, your arm gets sore. And, you know, so I try to keep it as light as I can if, so that my clients don't get tired and they're constantly, you know, 
if you drop the bait on the bottom and you're not jigging, then you're not doing what you should do. So you want a light rod, you know, that can carry two ounces because two ounces is kind of heavy for what we would typically use inshore for drum and that kind of stuff, right? I'm there. I'm telling you know, an eighth quarter ounce blank is kind of where I am. But um, yeah, something real simple. You don't have to have a lot of drag. Um, contrary to what a lot of people think, it's if you ever try to reel in something with a 20 pound drag, you'd be surprised how heavy 20 pounds is. If you know, go grab two bags of ice. That's a lot of drag. So for me personally, 3,000, 4,000 light spinning rod, something that'll carry the weight so you're not constantly overworking the rod. And I think that's all you really need. Um, 20, 30 pound fluorocarbon. I tend to use 30, especially on the rocky stuff, because I feel like it uh, gives me a little bit better abrasion resistance. All right. And are you using braid or mono and what size braid? Oh, braid, 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 braid. You know, the old days, you know, we all use mono and it stretched. It, it amazes me how much better I can feel a bite, how much better I can feel the bottom. Um, you know, once you start doing this a little bit, you'll actually get to the point where you can feel the jig actually on the rock and then go off the rock and then go back on the rock. So it's, it's really important to be able to feel what's happening because, you know, it's 40 feet below you. Sure, the electronics are telling you what's there, but it's nice to be able to kind of feel it. So certainly, certainly braid. 20-pound test is probably plenty. 20 to 30, that's probably where I would come in at there. All right. Now, I still have some more questions on the tackle. What length leader of that 20 or 30-pound fluoro, what length leader? And then I'm also always curious, like whether you're using that two-ounce jig head or you're using a spro bucktail, what knot are you tying? Are you tying something that allows that, like a loop knot that allows that jig to move yeah. around more loosely, or are you tying it I'll, sort of synced in? I'll tie an arm's length, which is basically six foot of leader. Um, and I'm lazy, and the reason I tie six foot of leader is I know for a fact if we're doing this the way we should, we are going to get hung up and lose jig heads. It's just a nature of the business. It's going to happen. One, one tip I can give you there is to try to keep your jig as vertical as possible to the boat. You know, a lot of people want to throw out and jig back. You will get hung up more. Remind me of that. We'll talk about that when we get into a little more flounder, you know, specific species stuff. Um, so six foot, double uni is what I tie my with. I can do an FG knot, but double uni seems to work just as good for me. And yes, I do tie a loop knot. I use a canoe man's loop knot it's the one that uh mark nichols at doa taught me in a seminar 20 years ago and i still use it so jump online there and you can certainly see that knot and it works great i, I think the loop does give it a little bit more swing as you're bouncing up and down all right i mean I'll, i've fallen everything and now i'm going to move on but instead of just sort of asking questions about some of the soft plastics and and offerings you you displayed on camera I think I'm going to push you to do a little bit of target species talking. Now, in our pre-show notes, it was grunts, black sea bass, and flounder. So I'm of a frame of mind to finish with flounder since it's our short season. You know, and again, oh, meat, and, meat fishing without truly meat fishing because it's light tackle. I love that description of it as too. You take a pick. I don't know how different they are. Grunts or sea bass, or we talk about them together. And, and tell me well, about grunt, how you would put me on one. Grunt, sea bass and grouper for that matter, all kind of tend to hang out in the same area. Um, the black bass to me, and it could be just the nature of our schools, the black bass inshore are so much thicker. You know, we've got tons and tons of 
11 to 12 inch fish. Um, trying to find that 13 inch fish again. If you think about what we were talking about earlier about public bottom and how that gets hammered every day, you know, there's only so many of those 13 inch fish on that piece of bottom. And, you know, if everybody's going to that same piece, it's harder and harder to get that. I think black bass to me on the screen, at least when you look at them, it's more of a mass on the bottom. Grunts are similar to that to me. I think the grunts tend to kind of hang a little bit more tighter to the structure. Maybe, maybe that's what I'm going to say is maybe. Um, really, like I was saying there earlier, for me, this time of year, because I am targeting more grunts than black bass because it's so hard to get a keeper here in the heat of the summer, black bass wise, I tend to use a lot of squid. I'll put, I'll come right to the rocks, spot lock on the trolling motor. We can talk about that too. Spot lock on the trolling motor and bounce around that rock. You know, jog forward 10 feet, jog over 10 feet, jog back 10 feet, jog over 10 feet, and just jog around that rock until I find what I'm looking for. Usually if you find one in some of these little rocks that I'm fishing, if we find one, I may stay a little bit longer, but chances are one or two, that's it. You need to move. Um, I know that's crazy because offshore guys will, will get a bite going and they'll stay there for hours and hours and hours. For me, I feel like we don't have enough bottom to really support a large population. So I'm actually going to, you know, it's all one big, rock complex you know let's say dallas rock it's all one big rock complex but i'm hitting one specific spot for five minutes you know and then moving a little bit you know maybe even as far as 20 30 feet and hitting another rock and then moving and hitting another rock um and i just constantly bounce around those rocks and that's really kind of how i black bass and and grunt fish and you know while you're doing this especially this time of year always keep a big rod out you know big rod eight thousand spinning reel heavy duty rod uh, bucktail or another soft plastic because you know the cobia at least for me if I'm out there catching little fish and jigging it's not unusual to have those big cobia come up to check out the boat and see what all the action is and that's always a great way to pick up cobia I know that the guys north of us like to really sight fish for them but for me it seems like I do a lot better just not really sight fishing for them but just let them be a target of opportunity all right um Man, I fought, I'm again. I'm on board. As far as squid for the grunts and the sea bass, what's the vehicle that you're delivering that squid? Is it on a jig head? Same, same jig head, but no you soft know, plastic. I, you're not taking a soft plastic. No, it's, uh, no. Without a soft plastic, I use a jig head. Um, and, and I do that for a couple reasons. This tends to have a longer hook, so I get better pur purchase when I'm trying to unhook it for my clients. Uh, they are extremely cheap. I, I mean, maybe not as cheap as a must-add hook and a sinker, but they are pretty damn cheap. Um, you know, a lot of times you can cheat and add a bucktail on the bottom and then come up, say, two, three feet and, you know, add a trailer hook off of that, you know, tie a barrel knot or whatever you want to call it, dropper knot, and tie another hook and put two pieces of squid down, you know, kind of a light tackle version of a chicken rig. Um, I tend to just use one piece of squid on a, on a, on a jig head like this and it keeps everything clean and simple. I get less hangups that way and um, it works. So I, I haven't had really much desire to change from that. Chunk of squid or strip of squid? Something that's sort of dangles or something that's just close to the hook? Strip. I, I, I tend to process my own wings. What I'll do is I'll slice those wings in probably a three to four foot strip, uh, half inch wide. Uh, maybe yeah, about a half inch wide, and then I will lay it out on a uh, piece of hardware cloth, 
salt the hell out of it, let it dry a little bit, salt it again, and then pack it in the freezer. So, you know, uh, I'll, Texas Tackle sells flats of uh, squid wings. So I'll go grab a couple of flats of squid wings, and that way I'll always have some in the freezer. And then and then, what does the piece look like that you put on the hook? Is it like a half it's inch by half three? It's half inch wide, three, four inches long. Yeah, it's a half okay. inch wide, three, four inches long. And I'll, I'll hook it once and then turn it and hook it twice. So I've got, you know, the, the hook purchase through the squid twice. And that is, it is really that damn simple. It, it just don't overthink it and make it think that it's some kind of finessey thing. It is as simple as it goes. It's, it's a great thing to do with your kids too. So, man, that's a great segue. I was getting ready to ask whether you got, you know, new, you in the business often have new to fishing people on the boat or you have kids on the boat. So how do they do with setting the hook? I mean, as far as like getting bites and yanking on it too early or, you know, how do you help? your people actually hook the fish to bring them up once you've put them in the right spot and put the right stuff in their hands? Uh, I really don't have a problem with that. You know, unfortunately for me, inshore fishing, it seems like a lot of my newbies want to be Bill Dan's and just rear back and set the hook. And sometimes when you're trout fishing or drum fishing, especially throwing top order for a drum, the last thing you want to do is to rear back and set the hook because if the drum misses it, you've pulled it out of the strike zone by six, seven feet. Um, this is a situation where you say, hey, you get a bite, you feel a big bite. Uh, that's something to talk about is, you know, a lot of times when we're fishing this stuff, we're fighting the pinfish, the ringtails, the tom tates, all the little trash fish you could possibly imagine. Oyster toads, lizard fish, you know, all that stuff is there. So everything is constantly tapping at that piece of squid. And just eventually they'll, they can pick up real quick, you know, hey, that's a big bite. And when you when you feel that big bite, just give it a short jerk and reel a little bit. If he's not on there, drop it back down. And the other thing I always tell them is if you're not getting those little bites, the tap taps and everything, chances are you don't have bait. Reel up. Let's check your bait. I mean, right. it is it is bone dry simple. And that's the beauty of it is, is it's not necessarily a, a advanced technique. It is as simple as putting something on the bottom for them to eat. All right. I think I have one more question, then we might move on to flounder. So my, uh, my potential last question, I reserve the right to ask another question. My potential last Absolutely. question is if it's not the heat of summer and I say, Mike, you're going to try to put me on some grunts and some sea bass, not in the heat of summer, and I'm not going to let you use squid. I'm going to make you make it an artificial game. What is the, in your opinion, best artificial for grunt, best artificial for sea bass? Same thing, soft plastic, just soft plastic on the bottom. Take your pick. You know, I mentioned those diesel minnows, those five inch over the five inch or they six. These are five inch. For the five inch diesel minnow and the six inch dirt shad, uh, you know, even a six inch gulp, all that stuff is to me one of the easiest things to use if you're not going to use natural bait. It, it works. And I mean, it really works good. Um, you know, we'll, we'll segue into the flounder thing. You know, one of the things about fishing this way for flounder is, is I'm going to catch keeper black bass. Like I said, I tend to catch less squid on soft plastic. I mean, less squid, less grunts on soft plastic, but I certainly catch a lot of black bass on soft plastic. So, you know, in the fall after flounder season, we'll just basically throw a lot of soft plastics and just go pound away and catch what we can catch. It's a great thing to do. Um, flounder wise, I am, very hardcore soft plastic. I will throw bait every once in a while. I think live bait works well. Um, you know, as the season has changed and the technique for flounder has changed because of the short season, I really like a soft plastic like I was talking about. Um, 
something to talk about there is we talked about the black bass and grunts I tend to find on top of the structure. You know, I mentioned, you know, actually finding the flounder on top of the reef balls. I also want to make sure that I work the soft sandy areas around that hard structure. So when I pull on structure and jig, before I leave, I'm going to actually, we said fishing vertically. Remember we said that too. This is one of the few times I'll, I know I'm going to lose rigs this way, but I'll turn around and throw away from the structure, let the soft plastic sink all the way to the bottom and then jig it back a couple of times just to check. A lot of times that school of flounder may not be actually in the hard stuff, but maybe on the soft sand right next to it, you know, because that way they can attack bait and then go back to the sand and camouflage themselves. So think of it that way too. You know, when I talk flounder and I'm talking structure like that, sometimes with the flounder I have found, it's not necessarily on the hard structure. They are, but before you leave, cast the areas around it, all the, the soft sandy stuff and make sure that they're not sitting out there in the sand instead of the structure. And if I'm throwing soft plastic is your, preferred for flounder now because we are we're full on in the flounder conversation now jig head soft plastic or spro bucktail soft plastic i use a jig head soft plastic um i have no problem with the spro whatsoever i think they're very very effective um me being a cheap guy uh h h lures in louisiana makes my two ounce uh jig heads and i can't remember the price on them but it's way way cheaper than a than a spro and if I'm going to put a soft plastic on there, I don't think the I don't think the bucktail makes that much difference. And the reason I don't think it makes that much difference is in the old days when we were all throwing spros, you were still throwing a spro even though all the bucktail got chewed off. So and it was still working. So I don't think the the actual bucktail part of it is is that big of a difference. So a straight soft plastic is what I've really gone to now more than anything. All right, and. When you put a jig head soft plastic in my hand and we're over top of the structure and, you know, maybe before I'm casting out and bringing it back, what is the jigging instruction you give to your clients? Like, what, how do you tell them the best? Like, a little bit of time on the bottom, more time on the bottom, big jerk, you know, walk me through like, the instructions. I, I, I kind of, you know, set the jig on the boat and demonstrate. I really want to go, you know, up a foot, foot and a half and then touch the bottom and then up, up a foot and a half, touch the bottom. I, uh, to me, that seems to work the best. That's kind of how I do it. You know, as you throw out you let it touch the bottom and, you know, again, with the braid, you actually feel it touch the bottom. So, you know, you're on the bottom. So that's kind of how I do it is, is I kind of, you know, let it touch the bottom, come up a foot, foot and a half, let it touch the bottom. Um, I don't think, and, and I could be wrong depending I know a lot of people like to jig maybe a little bit stronger, maybe three feet off the bottom and back, three feet off the bottom and back. Um, I think that may work better if you're drifting as opposed to anchored down with the trolling motor. Um, I think anchored down with the trolling motor, certainly for me at least, the one, one and a half foot, just pick it up, set it down, pick it up and set it down, um, works a lot better for me. So does that mean spot lock works a lot better for you than drifting? Are you more a let's hold in space or do you like to drift? I, I am a spot lock guy. I, I I hope somebody would come out and give Minn Kota uh, some competition. But, yes, I am a spot lock guy. I think that the, the spot lock, you know, us younger guys, the old guys used to carry us fishing, and all it was for us just to pull the anchor. And the spot lock has really changed that drastically over the years. Um 
I like the spot lock because it lets me actually dissect a piece of structure how I want to dissect it depending on which way the wind and tide are going. And, you know, a lot of times with an anchor, I'm going to swing one way or swing the other. A spot lock, I can pretty much stay where I want to stay. And if I'm not getting anything there, I can move. Um, I'm a spot lock fiend, I reckon is the best way to put it. All right. So to go back to the jigging action, when you say foot and a half, let it touch the bottom, am I letting it rest on the bottom or is it literally just a touch of the bottom and then go back to another jig? I always, yeah, oh, one second count, you know, touch bottom 1,001, come back up, touch bottom 1,000. It's the action of the jig that I think is attracting the fish more than the actual scent and everything else associated with the jig. So I, I, I want as, as much movement as I can get. And, it, and, you know, I don't think the time on the bottom, whether it's a second or two seconds, matters as much because you know and I know that after you've been doing it for a couple hours, your jigging gets a lot slower anyhow. We still catch fish. So, but yeah, I kind of, you know, let it touch the bottom, give it a good second, back up, touch the bottom, good second, back up, touch the bottom. And again, with spot lock, I'm doing that in a spot for maybe a minute or so, and then I'm moving 10 feet and doing it for a spot there until I find some kind of pattern. And especially with flounder, if you can find a pattern and go, okay, you know, we were talking about the soft bottom next to the hard rock or on top of the hard rock. If you find one chances are there, you know, offshore like this, there are way more there than just one. So, you know, once you catch that first one, stay there, work that bottom good before you move because chances are there's more than just one there. Okay. Now, as far as your flounder bites, when you're jigging, what percentage of those bites come when the jig is on the bottom? What percentage of those bites come on the jig up? What percent come on the fall? That's a good question, Gary. I think a lot of them come on the fall. Uh, I'll go as high as 70, 80 percent, I think, go on the fall. And, and, and my reason for that is, is uh, a lot of the, the less experienced clients I take will uh, be jigging and jigging and they'll let that slack go in their line when it hits the bottom. And then they lift it up and all of a sudden they've got a flounder on it. So that leads me to believe that at least 70 percent of my stuff is on the fall. I really do think it's on the fall. OK, man. Uh- I mean, I think we've covered it, but I don't want to move on or, you know, call it a podcast and, unless you tell else. me. Uh, Gary, I, I think that's it. I mean, it, you know, one of the reasons I really want to talk about it with you is it is just so simple. And it's a great way, you know, especially in the summertime, to get the kids out, let them go catch fish. And, you know, like we were talking, all that trash fish is still fish that they're going to reel in. And so, by golly, go do it. And that way everybody's having fun. And. You know, in the meantime, yeah, we're now mid-July here at this podcast, so it might be time to really kind of start thinking about that live bottom flounder season. I'm not going to encourage anybody to specifically target a flounder just because I don't want the dead discard rate to rise. We're trying to build the population. But it's a pretty daggone good time to maybe poke around some of that live bottom and see what you see. Obviously, as we get closer to the opening date, I can promise you I'll be doing that. And so I think I do have one last question, and it was, I understand the mentality about, you know, a cobia swimming up to the boat, especially if you're stirring up the bottom or bringing fish around or just in their zone. When you're doing this nearshore jigging, are you ever putting, like, just a light line out, or are you ever just letting anything float on the surface? I call that the entertainment rod. Yes, yes, I, I call that the entertainment rod. Uh, that is a... Uh, either a popping cork or maybe a balloon, usually a popping cork with about six foot leader, a big split shot and a piece of live bait and throw it back there while you're doing everything. And 
And the reason I call it the entertainment rod is because it's back behind the boat out of the way. You know, you really don't pay attention to it until the drag goes. And it, it, it always amazes me the stuff that you can catch, you know, not trying to catch it, just sitting there jigging the bottom. And yeah, that's a great point, Gary. I, I forgot to mention that. That's really good. Yeah. That's my entertainment rod. We always have an entertainment rod. Out, almost always. What most often takes the entertainment rod and then give me a couple of oddities that have taken the entertainment rod. Cobia, Cobia will take the entertainment rod. Uh, that's usually a really good, obviously you're going to catch sharks and you're going to catch anything from, you know, the spiny dogfish up to the black tips and the spinners. Um, I've had some mahi that way, you know, and I, I'm, I'm talking about three miles, four miles off the beach, you know, catching dolphin. Uh, that'll happen. That'll happen every you know, It happens enough, especially in the heat of the summer to make it kind of a regular thing. So it's not that odd, but I always do think it's funny that I'm inside the land catching a mahi. Um, we've hooked a sail that way. Um, had him just enough for a jump or two and that was it. We were done. But I mean, we were, again, we were, I think in this, we might've been four miles off the beach in this spot. And, uh, let's see what else, uh, you know, hooked a tarpon that way. You're obviously going to hook a bunch of Kings, a bunch of large Spanish, depending on how big of a piece of bait you put out. So again, you know, while you're doing that, that's a great point. Put something out and do that. Um, any final thoughts, Mike? This was, I mean, very informative. I do think you did a great job covering everything. But before I say goodbye, I'll give you the floor one last time. I, I can't think of anything else. I've covered everything, basically what I do. This is, um, you know, this time of year, June, July, and August is, is we've talked about it. I call it my mom, dad, and the kids season. And we do a lot of jigging like this during this time of year. And it's a great way to, you know, grab something to eat, you know, um, I hate to, you know, you guys hear me talk on the weekly reports all the time. Yeah, I do a lot of Spanish fishing, but sometimes I just get tired of it. And this is a great way to really mix it up. Or, you know, if you go early in the morning, you catch enough Spanish to go, hey, at least we've got supper. Let's go do something else. This is a great substitute to really kind of add some spice to your day without having to uh, get really heavy into it. Captain Mike Opagard, thank you. Native Sun Guide Service out of the Topsail area. Always a good time talking to you. Always a good time Thanks, when, our, when we cross paths. I hope you guys have a good week. You too, man. Billy. All right, Gary, Gary, Gary. Good friend, Captain Mike Opagard. What was Billy's best takeaway? I knew that was going to be a good episode. I just knew it was. He crushes it every week, so I knew it was going to be good. Um, you know, I'm always the person when somebody says something multiple times, I say this all the time, I, I just listen. And so when he's talking about the spot lock, getting in the spot, and if you have spot lock, if not, take a young person with you and let them throw the anchor and, <laughs> and figure out how to keep you there. Uh, maybe like a little oar or something as well. Um, but, but yeah, man, I think, you know, like getting in that one spot, dissecting it, and then when you find flounder, like, just stay there. Um, and then he started talking about that entertainment rod. I'm like, God, that sounds real fun too. Like maybe, yeah. maybe all of these are entertainment rods. We're going to crack up in a cold one and sit around and see what happens. <laughs> why are we working? Why are they all entertainment? Good point. Good point. Yeah. Why are these not all entertainment rods? Like why am I jigging? <laughs> so That's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, I tell you what, man, you need a spot lock. Emmett and Marine Warehouse Center, when you finally pull the trigger and buy that boat, Emmett and Marine Warehouse Center will probably make sure you have a spot lock on board. We'll call me Billy Spotlock. All right, there we go. For a kayak. We'll put it on. <laughs> All right. 
Really appreciate uh, Marine Warehouse Center and Academy Sports for sponsoring this episode. Go support them when you can, and we'll see you guys next week. Gary, thanks, man. It's a great episode. Fisherman.